Thank you for that great build-up, Bill. Hope to answer all of those questions that uh, Bill has raised for us. I'll get to some of them, I think. You know, it's been really fun for me to uh, listen along. Uh, it's been a while since I've been with you. And, uh, man, you all are getting some rich teaching. This is amazing. So, you know, hearing from Chris and from Bob, and I hear I understand that uh, George has a lot of props that I'm missing. I can't, I can't hear those. I can't hear those on, on the audio, but following along has been really, really fun for me. Um, I've just learned a lot. And uh, I, I did want to say one thing that was interesting to me. Uh, Chris, you mentioned something uh, a couple of weeks ago about how if you were uh, stuck on a deserted island and could only bring 10 books, which I thought it was only one book, but you moved it to 10, <laughs> that you would take the New English Translation Bible with its 60,000 plus translator's notes. Um, for me, there's a real simple book. I think Debbie might have it on the screen for us. This is the book that I would probably take if she can show it here, if it's coming up. It's the uh, Complete Idiot's Guide to Deserted Island Survival and Boat Building. So, just shows you a little difference between the teachers you have here. So, I think Chris might want to be on the deserted island for a while because he has that book and nine others, and I'd be kind of wanting to get off that place. So, a little bit different. Well, I know that uh, today is actually Palm Sunday. And uh, as we move our way towards Easter, um, uh, it was interesting for me growing up. I don't know what your experience was like uh, growing up with Palm Sunday. I was raised in a Catholic church, and uh, actually it was really informative for me as I became a Christian, some of the things I did understand uh, from my upbringing. But one of the things that was interesting is we always did Palm Sunday, and as a kid, I'd show up and you'd just get this little thing of a palm frond or whatever. And I'm like going, "I, I had no idea why we're giving it out on that day, and it was kind of twisted in a weird shape, you know, years later now I can look back and say they're trying to make it into a cross, but for me as a kid, I was like, you know, I'm thinking, it was just arbitrary to me. I thought, why don't we just call it Skittles Sunday, and everyone gets a bag of Skittles. I mean, that would be, that would be a little bit better. But as we think about uh, Easter approaching, um, and we think about that triumphal entry, if you remember that part of Jesus' uh, walk into Jerusalem, where people really came to believe that he was the Messiah, and they put down their coats and they put down leaves and palm fronds and all kinds of things to pave the way for this king that they believed was here. Um, that's what we're getting ready for for next week. And I think our passage today, in a very broad way, I think set them up for what they did with Jesus on Palm Sunday. So I will try to, I will try to make that all tie together. But as we think about Palm Sunday and our work into Easter... It's interesting just how God's fulfillment of the prophecy that he gave to Isaiah in our passage today is kind of serving as a background to all these young believers or believers that Jesus was the Messiah. So we are in uh, Isaiah chapter 21, and we are continuing on. Uh, If you remember in the broad sense in the book of Isaiah, that um, the first 39 chapters is really about God's judgment. God's explaining to Israel the judgment that he's going to bring upon them for their idolatry, for their waywardness, their sinfulness. And yet, there's also this book of comfort, verses chapters 40 through 66. We're going to eventually get to the idea of the comfort, that consolation that God has for the nation of Israel. Where we've been camping for a little while is what's been called the, the judgments, the burdens, the oracles. 
from chapters 13 to 23, we've been talking about these judgment that God's making on the other nations, not just the judgment that awaits Israel. Uh, there are 11 of these judgments or oracles. We have covered so far six of them. Judgments against Babylon, against Philistia, against Moab, Damascus, and Samaria. Today we're going to explore three more of those judgments. That's on Babylon, Edom, and Arabia, and there's still two more to come with Jerusalem and Tyre. It's interesting as I've tried to put my head around even not only what these things are saying, but how they're presented. It, it's, it's kind of like this interesting sermon series. You know, it's like this wouldn't have really worked well as a sermon series today. You know, it's like the Tours of Destruction series, you know. But it's just a, an ongoing way of God communicating the coming judgment upon the nations and upon the enemies of Israel. And what I want to do is I'd like us to read this whole chapter if we can, and then we'll circle back and make some comments. So follow along with me in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. And it says, The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. As windstorms in the Negev swept on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam, lay siege, Medea. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. For this reason, my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I'm so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. They set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. Rise up, captains, oil the shields. For thus the Lord says to me, go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her god, gods are shattered on the ground. O my threshed people, and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. The oracle concerning Edom. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Timah. Meet the fugitive with bread. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, in a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. What's really interesting is there's three different things that we're going to try to accomplish if we can in this short amount of time, but there's three different countries jammed in this one chapter. 
And uh, the, the first and the longest one is about the judgment on Babylon. We kind of understand that because in verse 2, there's a reference to th- this city being conquered by the Medes and the Persians, which we later understand is Babylon. And also in verse 9, the idea of Babylon has fallen. So we know that this is what this is generally about. Now, as far as the, how this fits in with the previous, I think this is different from what Bob taught us about the, the destruction or the, uh, the judgment that was laid on Babylon in the 13th and 14th chapter. I think this is more specific about what's happening and what will happen in 539 B.C. when uh, Babylon is destroyed. And what's interesting, too, is that as far as time, it seems that it, you could possibly put this around uh, about 703, 702 B.C. because what happens later in Isaiah 39 is that there's an envoy that comes from Merodach Baladan, who's the king of Babylon. They're in Jerusalem trying to form an alliance with Judah against Syria. So it seems as though Isaiah is trying to say, why would you want to start an alliance with this kingdom that's going to be doomed? And what's interesting at the time is that Babylon was not a real big power. It was a regional power. It wasn't like Assyria. It wasn't something that you should totally be threatened of like with Assyria. So Isaiah is bringing this prophecy that warned Hezekiah about why would you go to go into that kind of alliance. What he's doing is he's looking ahead prophetically about 100 years to this period of time when Babylon will grow into this great empire. And what will happen is that Jerusalem will be under attack by King Nebuchadnezzar in the year 605 with the, what's called the Battle of Carchemish. And then in 598 and 588, he will be taking captives with him back to Babylon. So Isaiah is trying to give us a picture of what's going to happen because there's destruction that's coming. So don't form an alliance with this king. Well, what we'll also learn is that they're going to be in captivity for about 70 years And starting with this uh, destruction of Babylon in 538, what's going to happen is that the the Jews, the Israelites, will eventually start returning. They were taken kind of in three waves into exile, and they'll be brought back in three waves from exile in 538 and 458 and 444. And even what we're going to look at today is interesting because it has a fulfillment that we read about in Daniel chapter 5. So this is a really interesting section that we're looking at because it's, it's very condensed. It's very packed. There's a lot of emotion that's packed into here. There's a lot of action that's packed into here. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's just dense. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of visionary things that are happening. So let's try to unpack this if we can. The big idea to remember is that Isaiah is bringing this, this prophecy to foretell the destruction of Babylon. It's important for the Jewish people to know that Babylon, even though you may not understand everything now, Babylon is going to be destroyed. And they're going to be, he's going to be destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. This is an important thing that they needed to know. They need to hold on to and to remember. And the idea is that there's a consolation of hope. God is trying to bring to them through this prophecy that this destruction will happen. You will not be captive forever. So wrapped up into these details is this message of hope that they will be delivered from this bondage that they will be in under Babylon. Well, let's jump in here a little bit. Let's go back to verse 1. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea is the windstorms and the Negev sweep on. It comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. You know, the, the idea of this wasteland is that Babylon was obviously in an Arabian desert, but because of the Euphrates River that went through Babylon, there was... A lot of marshlands, lake areas that were in and around Babylon. So in a sense, you have an oasis or a wet spot, a sea type of environment, in a sense, in the midst of a desert. So he's kind of seeing this general picture of, gosh, there's like an oasis type of thing surrounded by a desert. Okay, 
He also talks about this windstorm, that what he's seeing is this windstorm that's coming about that's moving towards Babylon. And what's interesting is that windstorms were normal in this part of the world. Um, in the desert, there was windstorms that would come along and make a, a big ruckus with sand. I grew up in the, in the desert in Arizona, and we had many versions of this. We just called them dust devils, where all of a sudden, wind would just pick up and just you'd see dust start swirling. But that's not what he's talking about. Even though there's common windstorms that would take place in this desert, this one was different. It says, it's coming from the wilderness. It's coming from a terrifying land. And the idea behind the word terrifying is this concept of terrible, that it's, it's uncivilized, it's almost barbaric, it's, it's, it's something that's really powerful. And the, the idea of a windstorm is that it's something that's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen with power. It's going to be overwhelming. I mean, sandstorms bring confusion and fear and terror. And that's the vision that Isaiah is seeing, is this storm that is moving towards Babylon. I think we might have this possibly on video, but a few years ago, there was a desert storm that hit the city of Phoenix, and I guess technically these might be called a haboob, but let's watch as this is a little bit in fast motion about what took place in Arizona back in 2011. Obviously in fast motion, but you get this idea, this overwhelming storm, this overwhelming windstorm that's moving. And it seems as though Isaiah is seeing this picture of this massive storm that's coming towards Babylon. Um, second verse. Here it comes. There's the sound of it right there. <laughs> Didn't know he had sound effects. Did you hear that from your Bible? A, wow. I have the audio version of the Bible as well here. That was awesome. Thank you, Debbie. That was great. So I'm the guy with sound effects now, I guess. Is that it? Second verse says, A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, Medea. I've made an end of all the groaning she has caused. So Isaiah is telling us that what he's seeing is not just... This is something that's very hard to watch. It's, it's severe. It's the idea behind it is that he's watching almost a battle-type scene. It's the heaviness and the harshness that comes from battle, the fear, the, the, the heavy, just the crazy of battle. And this is what he's seeing. This is what this vision of, is about. He's describing the big idea of it from, from the start right here. When it talks about this idea of who's the treacherous one, a couple ways to try to think about this, I think as I've read, is that, you know, one is to think it's just talking in general about Babylon. Babylon has been treacherous, and it is still treacherous. It's been a destroyer. It's still destroying. This is its reputation. It's still doing what it's doing, and that's the target. But what's also interesting is, is Herodotus, who is a Greek historian, tells us that what happened was that there were two great officers from the king of Babylon that went over to Cyrus, king of the Medo-Persians. They were named Gadatus and Gobrias. And what happened is that they became traitors to the king of Babylon. And they went to Cyrus and they said, we will help you get into the city. We will help you find all the ways to get in here. And we will help you find out where the palace party is going to be. And so this idea of these two people that were raised in a treacherous environment, who learned how to be treacherous, who learned how to be destroyers themselves, would now turn on the destroyer Babylon. That they would be treacherous towards Babylon. 
And so the concept or the idea is that that one who's been treacherous, it's going to happen back to you. That the way Babylon has been treating others, they're going to be treated that way. In other words, they're going to be dealt with. And it's, it's interesting how I find oftentimes in the scriptures how God gives us this concept that he wants us to treat other people the way we want to be treated. And he's going to judge us on how we treat other people. Even if you take people who don't have faith in Christ, the Lord is going to actually say, well, then tell me how you treated people. You judged people when you did the exact same kind of thing. So I'm going to treat you the way you've treated other people. And now you have this idea that the one who's treacherous, something treacherous is going to happen to him. That God is going to bring justice for the Jews on how he treats Babylon here. And it's a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty because Isaiah is watching this and he's hearing the sovereign voice of God directing countries, just telling countries what to do. Elam, Medea, rise up, lay siege, go after these guys. Elam is a reference to Persia. Uh, that was a city in the area of Elam, or excuse me, of Persia. So it's just used to mean the, the, the empire of Persia. But we serve a God that can control countries. Sit with that for a minute, will you? Now, it's hard for me because when I think about that, I think, okay, well, what's he doing in this country then, (laughs) you know? And the point isn't to try to figure out how he's going to do all of those things. The point is to understand the majestic nature of this God that we serve, that, that Isaiah is watching this vision and he's hearing the God of the universe telling countries what to do, to be his instruments. This is a mighty God. This is not some tiny game of risk. This is God who controls the outcomes of things. And somehow he does that with people's wills. I don't fully understand that. But the picture that Isaiah is seeing is that this God is directing these countries, these two different countries, to come and bring justice. The other thing that's interesting in in just the tail part of that verse is that God is also speaking that he's going to bring an end to all the sighs, to all the groaning. And even in the midst of this picture of judgment, you have this idea of God saying, I'm going to put an end to this. That he's referring to the cries of his people that he hears through the captivity process, through as he hears through the prison process, that he hears their groanings. He's going to put an end to all of that. And it's interesting, it makes me think back in the, the book of Exodus where the Jews have been prisoners for 400 years and he hears the cries and their groaning and he comes down to rescue them. And God again makes this promise that I've heard your groanings. I'm going to put an end to your suffering. This is why I am bringing this judgment and these two countries on Babylon. Well, then it starts to shift a little bit that's a little bit interesting for me. It's been hard to follow because he's kind of describing stuff that's out there and now it turns to where he's almost describing what's going on inside of him. It's like he's seeing something and now he's feeling something and the feelings are really quite intense. Um, Starting in verse 3, he says, For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. So what he's seeing is it's making him experience just tremendous pain, tremendous confusion, tremendous turmoil, that he's not just reporting it, he's feeling it. Verse 4, I'm actually going to jump into the King James because it has, I think, a better translation here. He says, My heart panted, fearfulness affrighted me. The night of my pleasure hath he turned into fear unto me. Prepare the table, watch in the watchtower, eat, drink, arise, ye princes, and anoint the shield. 
And you're like, okay, what is that all about? It's like he's going from this intense feeling to now there's like these commands to eat and have fun and then have battle. And it's like, what is going on? This is very condensed in what's happening. And it's interesting to ponder. I think I've read kind of two different versions here. One is that this is Isaiah kind of in the scene, in the moment, as a Jew who's in exile, feeling and experiencing all the turmoil, all the crazy that that Jew is going to be feeling. He identifies with how tough that's going to be, how demanding it's going to be, how terrifying it's going to be when this judgment comes. But what's interesting is that he shifts to now barking out the commands. So he seems to be the one saying, rise up and eat and go oil the shields and so on. So some wonder if what's happening is if he's actually feeling and thinking what Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is feeling the moment this all happens. That somehow the anguish that he feels, the turmoil about the moment of this judgment and this moment of this surprise attack. And the picture that you have, this idea that arise and eat, as we'll see in a moment, Daniel chapter 5, it explains this incredible feast that Belshazzar threw for a thousand of his princesses, princes, excuse me, thousand people. So the idea is he's saying, this is, a, this is our moment, gang. This is our party time. I want you guys to set the tables. I want you guys to feast. I want you to drink. I want you to have a great time. This is party time. Matter of fact, go put something in the watchtower to make sure everything's okay. But there's a sense of arrogance, like, of course everything's okay. We're Babylon, yo, <laughs> you know? So it's this idea of just this unbridled passion to say, we're going to party tonight, big time. But then right in the midst of this party, you get this arise, grab the shields, get ready for battle. There's a quickness, there's a suddenness, there's a terror that takes place because of some quick attack that's going on. I want us to flip over to Daniel chapter 5, if you can, and I want to read a couple places from here. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, Daniel writes and says, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And here you get this picture of it is party time and we're going crazy and we're going to bring out all these captured items. We're going to just be kind of making fun of all kinds of stuff. This is crazy party time. Arise and eat. And then what happens is that while this is taking place, there's a hand that appears and writes something on the wall. And it makes Belshazzar a little nervous. Look what it says in verse 6. After this hand appears and writes this, Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him. And his hip joints went slack. I get that once in a while. (laughs) And his knees began knocking together. This was terrifying to him. And it seems as though Isaiah is almost relaying to us the the terror that's going to fall upon this person who's been so arrogantly barking out commands that it's party time. Look what also says in verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Matter of fact, when the queen walks in, that's the first thing she notices is how pale he is. 
And the idea that you have, what Isaiah is trying to convey, is in the midst of this party, when you're expecting nothing but fun, it becomes absolute terror. To the point where it's like, guys, scramble and take care of us. Oil the shields. It's this idea of do something to protect us. You know, if you put enough oil on a shield, hopefully swords are going to be bouncing off of that kind of thing. So they're called quickly to battle stations and the turmoil that's raging. And honestly, it just made me think of what, what's happened so often and way too often in, in our culture is a terrorist attack. That when you think of people who've gone to a place to pray, that's the last thing they're expecting, isn't it? When you think of a group of people down in Thousand Oaks, California, who went to a, a kind of a country western bar to dance and hang out with their friends, that's the last thing they expected. And this is the kind of terror that Isaiah is trying to communicate that God pronounced judgment and it came in a single night and it was over. King Belshazzar was slain. And what's interesting is the judgment that is brought upon that Daniel talks about. He says in verse 22 and 23, he says, you let, uh, you, Yet you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, and all your ways you have not glorified. Verse 30 says, That same night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. And so Isaiah is painting this picture of this incredible change of events and this incredible turmoil that's going to fall upon the king of Babylon. Well, verse 6 goes on to say, For thus the Lord says to me, Go station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. And now it's kind of shifting. So Isaiah is this first-person narrative. I'm in the midst of it. I'm seeing what's going on. I'm almost, I'm almost acting out this role, maybe as Belshazzar. I'm in the midst of the turmoil and the craziness and what's going to happen. And now all of a sudden, the Lord is talking to Isaiah. So he's saying to Isaiah, go appoint a watchman. Now, it's interesting to ask, is this a literal watchman? Like, hey, go hire somebody or train somebody to sit up on the, the tower to watch? Or would this be more figurative? I think it's hard to believe it's literal because this has not happened yet. This is coming from about another 100 years or more, actually. Yeah, more, almost 200. So I don't think he's saying go and set a physical person at a physical place. He's saying that you need to be watching for these events. And these are the things that you need to watch for. I wonder if he's even through Isaiah appealing to the Jews saying, I'm going to bring this about. Watch for it. Wait for it. Look for it. I'm giving you a promise of hope here. So what is it, Israel, that you need to watch for? What is it that you need to look for? He gives a sign. He says it's a horseman in pairs. Literally, it's chariots of men is the idea. You get this sense of a cavalry. Cavalry. I always say that wrong. You get the sense of a cavalry that's happening. And cavalry are on horses, but it's interesting because Cyrus is also known to go into battle with donkeys against the Scythians. Uh, I think the camels were more just the pack animals. I don't know if there was any really pulled, pulling chariots. 
But the idea is that these two cavalries are coming, these two forces are coming, and they're side by side. They're in unity in one approach to destroy Babylon. In other words, the Medes and the Persians have, are coming together as a united kingdom. And so God is saying to the Israelites, watch for this, watch for this, watch for this. And as we go on, we see uh, in the next verse, so then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. I'm stationed every night and I guard my post. The King James is what says, and he cried, this is the King James verse 8, and he cried, a lion. My Lord, I stand continually upon the watchtower in the daytime and I am set in my ward whole nights. In other words, all evening. Verse 9 says, Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs. And one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. So the idea is like, did he see a physical lion? I'm not sure. Uh, it doesn't seem as though this watchman actually saw just a lion. Um, because there's, as we can tell from the context, there's a lot going on here, right? There's riders, there's horsemen, there's camels, there's this big dust storm that's moving towards it's hard to believe that it was just a single lion. It's, it might be something we can think of that it, this is symbolic of King Cyrus, that he is like a lion, that he's ferocious, that he's powerful, that he's pouncing, he's terrorizing. So what this watchman sees is something as ferocious as a lion coming upon. And the watchman's basically saying, I finally see what you're talking about. I have been diligent to watch. I have been watching. And the signs that you told me to look for, guess what? I've seen them. You've come through on what you told me to look for. You've come through on promising that you would give us a sign of what to look for. Um, so that, um, that idea then of, of waiting is that he's been diligent to look and his diligence has paid off. Really, it's interesting for me to think when it comes to this phrase where he now pronounces what they talked about. He said that fallen, fallen is Babylon. It's repeated twice. The idea here is to demonstrate its certainty and its finality, that God is definitely going to bring this about. And let's think about this for a second. Let's kind of back up. So you're somebody hearing this, and this is being passed down to generation to generation as teachings from Isaiah, and you become this group of people who are exiled, and you start to see that, wow, it's this Babylon that Isaiah talked about. We heard about this. And now you're brought into captivity, and you hear this story, and maybe you're raised in captivity and you hear the story of what's going to happen and all you're thinking about and the promise that you're holding on to is fallen, fallen is Babylon. That as you're being walked to Babylon, you're hoping and thinking that one day they will fall. And you're in captivity and you're thinking fallen, fallen is Babylon. And you start to hear the crazy commotion of what's going on and you're in exile there, you're a prisoner there, and you see this crazy stuff that's happening in a single night, and you look out the window and you're trying to identify the jerseys. You know, it's like, who's who? What is going on out there? And you see media, you see the Medes and the Persians, and you remember what Isaiah is saying. And you think, fallen and fallen is Babylon. In other words, this is God's message to give the Jews hope that I'm going to destroy Babylon, and it will be certain, and it will be final. Well, in verse 10, Isaiah says, O oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I've heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. And you see this is ending with just a great, great sense of compassion. That God hasn't forgotten his people. They're still my people. That's what he calls them. My afflicted. They've been threshed. They've been harassed. They've been afflicted. It's, it's interesting that when countries were taking exiles, 
the way they treated them was with overwhelming military force, and it was used in a manner that inspired psychological terror. And so God has great compassion. Even though he's brought judgment on his people, he knows what he's doing. He knows he's trying to restore them and bring them to a right understanding and a right relationship, and he still has compassion, great compassion for them through all that they've been suffering. And Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts, in other words, the one who controls everything, the God of Israel, that is such a personal phrase. This is their God. The one who loves them and cares about them. The God of Israel is the one who's spoken this. He sees, he understands, he's going to bring this about. And so this first oracle is just this real clear sense that something big is going to happen to Babylon. And you might not understand it, but you've got to understand that God is going to destroy this enemy. He's going to use the Medes and the Persians to do it. And he's going to bring you out of it. It's not got too many great details for the audience that's listening, but the big picture is God's going to take care of Babylon. Hold on to that. Believe that. Rehearse that as that happens. Well, the other two, I'm just going to summarize quickly because we're out of time. But what's interesting is these the oracles concerning Edom. Well, what's interesting about that, Edom was uh, a descendant of Esau, Duma, which has uh, kind of been translated as Edom. Um, what's happening, it's, it's interesting how there's another watchman theme. And this is uh, now, it's interesting because now it seems as though Isaiah is acting as a watchman. And the setting seems to be around the time of 539 when the, the Babylon has been destroyed and the first wave of captives are starting to be set free. And, and now Isaiah is kind of on a, as, as a watchman post looking out what's going on after this. And this country, Edom, is saying, you know, how much longer, how much longer, how much longer is what they're asking. Because they're wanting to know how much longer will we be under judgment. And he says to them, he says, you can inquire. And it's, it's so interesting. Where am I? I'm even lost. But he talks about um, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, inquire. Come back again. Now, this is very cryptic, but it seems as though that he's saying from this point of view in 539 is that the morning is coming. The morning is a beautiful time, right? It's a great time. But the morning is coming for us, the Jews, because God has rescued his people. But the night is coming for you. So if you don't want to come for you, then you inquire upon the Lord. And when it says that you come and return, the idea is that you repent. Edom, if you will repent, the night may not come, that God may be merciful to you. But for now, you're under judgment. And what's interesting is that God remembers what the Edomites said. Psalm 137 tells us, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. You see, the Edomites were there when Israel, was, Jerusalem was sacked, and they were throwing in their insults. They were saying, yeah, tear it apart. So God's judgment is coming upon them for their participation in what happened in Jerusalem. Well, lastly, the concerning Arabia, uh, the idea is that the country uh, of Arabia, or the region of Arabia, will also not uh, escape from judgment. And the picture here simply is that there are these people fleeing out of uh, Arabia, and the reason they're fleeing is because the destruction that's upon them makes them have to leave so quickly. The only way they can survive is to get out now, to get out quickly, because it's such an intense level of destruction that's going to be coming upon them. And this is a group of people, the, the Arabs, there was a sense in which traveling in caravans was uh, kind of the way you went. 
you brought all your stuff, you brought all your gear, you brought all your tents, you brought all your food, you brought all the stuff you're going to need, and they had no time for that. So they had to fly out of here, and now they are going to have to depend on somebody else to give them food and water because they had to run so quickly. Why? Because the judgment was so sudden and so intense. And so this, this land, Tima, which is known for some hospitality, a sense of oasis, now they're going to have to depend on other people for hospitality. They were, that was what they were about. They were all about, as Arabians, hey, let's provide hospitality. But you know what? This is a humbling thing. Now you are humble and you will have to be looking for comfort from other people. So the, the idea is that the judgment is going to come upon them, that they're going to have to flee because of that. And one group in particular, this, the, the family or, or town, village of Kedar, that they are going to be uh, done away with, that they no longer will um, be able to have the glory of their military strength as thought. And, and what's interesting, this can kind of put this uh, prophecy around, like I said, around 703 B.C., because uh, I think it was Sennacherib had his conquest in 701 upon this region. And so when Isaiah says that within a year, this is going to happen. And so what's happening is that he's giving these short uh, announcements towards the end of this chapter, but the full concept is the same, that God is bringing judgment for how you've treated Israel, how you've treated him. Well, what can we take away from here? Should we look for lions in the street? Um, I don't think we should. But I think there's three takeaways that we can try to kind of walk away thinking about this. The first one is that God knows the future. Doesn't he? He sees every detail. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows how our will works with his will. And he looks out and he sees all the things and he can make good out of bad. He can make everything work together. So just as he knew everything that was going to happen to the Israelites, and even he knew all the things that he would allow to instruct them, to teach them, he also knew how he was going to bring comfort to them. And I don't know what you're struggling with now. I don't know what you're dealing with now. But God's not looking at your life saying, what happened? Who messed up? What's wrong? Who missed the memo? <laughs> He's not like that at all. He is so in control. Even over the things that we don't like and the things we don't want, somehow he's going to make it work out to his glory and to our best. God sees the future. He knows what's ahead of you. We can trust him and walk with him. Secondly is that God is our judge. This is something I don't like to think about. I like to just camp on the side that, yeah, I can crawl up in his lap and call him Abba Father, and that's true. It's absolutely true. But it's when I treat God flippantly, when I don't give him the respect he deserves, that when I sense he wants me to do something and I drag my feet, I forget the idea that I'm going to be accountable to God, that I'm going to talk to him, that there is a judgment seat of Christ. I'll be in because of what Jesus did for me, but I will still have a thorough conversation with my maker about how I live my life, how I treated other people how I did or didn't do the things that he wanted me to do. And it's interesting, um, because that's not something that's comfortable for me. I just don't want to think about God as someone I'm accountable to. And yet this is an incredible picture, that you just don't treat God any way you want and get away with it. Even me, as a Christian, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't at all. There was a bumper sticker, Jack and I were driving around in Wilsonville, and the bumper sticker said, that love your neighbor thing? Yeah, I meant that. 
God. <laughs> like he means what he's saying. You know, we were driving around and uh, saw this, uh, this Lutheran school was for uh, kids, a little daycare thing. And it's called the Prince of Peace Daycare. And I thought, yeah, see, that's what we want to call our daycares. We don't want it to be consuming fire daycare, do we? <laughs> Hi, welcome to the judge of the living and the dead daycare. You know, we, we just don't want to talk about that. But as we see from Isaiah, he is a holy God. Absolutely holy. And the things that I can't get my head around as to how certain atrocities are, are, are enacted in the sense of his judgment, I can't figure that out. I can't. But it makes me think of a fire. That you know when a fire sweeps through a neighborhood and it overtakes a house. A fire is not in, it doesn't discriminate what it's going to burn. The nature of fire compared to anything else is just going to get burned. It doesn't matter if it's your photo album that you really loved or if it's something you didn't care about. That, but when fire meets something that's combustible, it's just going to burn it. And God is a holy, righteous God. And we're not. And so the idea is that there must be something that will protect us, that will take care of us, that will save us from his righteousness and holiness. The third thing that we can walk away with, I think, is that God keeps his promises. He told them, look for this, watch for this, wait for this, rehearse this. Really makes me wonder when Daniel is there watching this go on, if he had the phrase in his mind of what he heard taught from Isaiah. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And he's watching it right there. I wonder what the Jews felt when they saw the crazy going on and they heard it was the media Persians that were doing this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. They held on to that. And what's interesting is we celebrate this idea of um, Easter as we look at Palm Sunday. There's a group of people who heard enough things from the Old Testament to really believe that this guy is who God promised. Just taking from the book of Isaiah what we've seen, they believe that Isaiah was right, that this guy is a virgin. That was his reputation. He had no earthly father in that sense. He's from God. They've heard from Isaiah that he, there would be a great light in Galilee where Jesus' ministry had taken place. People saw this great light. They heard that from Isaiah that he'd be the prince of peace. And many experienced the peace that he brought to them personally. Isaiah told them that he would be a Nazarene. He'd be from the, the root of Jesse, that there'd be something about the Nazarenes that are in, pivotal to this Messiah. They heard also from Isaiah that he would heal the blind, heal the lame, he'd heal the mute. And they've been watching this and seeing this. They heard from Isaiah that he'd be preceded by a forerunner. Somebody would come before him to announce his coming. And they saw that in John the Baptist. And they also heard from Isaiah that he would heal, that he'd proclaim liberty to the captives. You see, they had listened to what God had said. They had been watchmen. They had been diligent to study the scriptures. And when they started to see these things and these phrases, and they said, that's him. That's him. That's him. So much so that they were compelled to lay down their robes to say, here's the king. Because they had believed the promises that they had heard throughout what God had taught them. You know, it's interesting um, when we were at Janet's mom's graveside <clears throat> on Tuesday. Um, her mom was 91 years old. She uh, was raised in Warsaw, Poland, during World War II. And saw crazy, crazy bad stuff. 
And uh, I won't get into a lot of the details. But for the last 10 years or so of her life, she just wanted to see the Savior. She just wanted to go home. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, as I was just sharing some things at the graveside, it's like she really believed that stuff. I mean, she just kept rehearsing that I'm going to see Jesus someday, Mm -hmm. that he promised me eternal life, that he died for my sins. It was a promise that she held on to, that she believed in. And so when we were at her graveside, we're all just like, oh, man, she's there. She's having an awesome time. But what it did to us, because she believed it so strongly, it had an effect on us. And there might be somebody here today, I don't know, that maybe you've heard this growing up. Maybe you've heard these phrases. But maybe you haven't really believed it. Well, this is for you. The promise that God has given to all of us is that his judgment is coming. And he wants to protect us from that. He will, but he's brought a person to take that judgment for us and the person of his son. And if you haven't responded to him, if you've just heard a lot and you've thought a lot and you said, yeah, I've heard that, but I've never really said, Jesus, I need you to pay for my sins. I want to believe that you are my savior. I want to invite you to do that today. I want you to to reflect on that this week as we're moving towards Easter, that you would reflect on the promises God gave Isaiah and the nation of Israel promises that judgment is coming, but I'm going to give you hope in the midst of it. And Easter is this idea that judgment has come and it's fallen on Jesus and that can give us hope. Let us pray. Father, thank you very much for this time to um, look into your word and do just a, a hard passage to understand. And Father, I do thank you for your fulfilled promises. Thank you for communicating to us clearly before these events happened that they are going to happen, that you are going to fulfill your word. And I thank you especially for how you fulfilled your promise to bring a a Savior, a Messiah. And I thank you as part of that, that this Messiah would die for us, that he would make all things right, that he'd show and give us victory over death, So, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that has not just embraced you as their Savior, who has not come to you to say, I need your forgiveness. I need to be saved from judgment. I need what Jesus did for me. Will you help them to make that decision? And, Father, if they do, will you just put on their heart to tell Mark, to tell Richard, to tell me, to tell Bob, tell Chris, tell somebody, so they can learn how to grow in that relationship. And please help us to learn how to Live our lives daily with just the joy and comfort of knowing that you are our Abba Father, but you're also someone who is our judge. We are accountable to you, that you're holy and that you're righteous. Help us to keep learning how to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.